Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to talk about a subject who has been requested so many times that we have lost count. Yep. Popular. Yes. For many people, especially for women and girls... Laura Ingalls Wilder is the primary source of information about what life was like for white people on the American frontier. It all started, uh, well, not completely started. There's a little bit that came before this, but mostly what people are familiar with is her semi-autobiographical historical Little House novels. Uh, Then a movie came out in 1974 and a TV show ran on NBC from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Then there were spinoffs and a musical and a miniseries. There was even a Little House reunion cruise in 2011. That sounds like fun. I know. I was always a big Nellie fan. <laughs> even though she was terrible, I loved her. Well, and speaking of Nellie, she really did have a nemesis named Nellie. Like, Laura Ingalls Wilder really did grow up in a little house. Although, to be more accurate, there were a bunch of little houses. Yeah. She really had a ma, a pa, and sisters named Mary, Carrie, and Grace. She also had a brother named Charles Frederick who died when he was a baby. Mary really went blind, uh, and Laura really married Almanzo Wilder and called him Manly. He called her Bessie. And Laura really had a daughter named Rose, and the three of them really did all live together at Rocky Ridge Farm. And people who have heard of Laura Ingalls Wilder probably conjure up an image of her as a child or at the oldest, a very young mother. But, of course, she lived long after that and had a whole life beyond that childhood on the prairie and her young adulthood that we're all so intimately acquainted with. And her life when she was writing them was very, very different from the life that they depict. So we're going to talk about her early life, uh, but a lot of it's also her as a grown-up novelist. Yeah. Fans of the series, either television or books, know the basics by heart. Laura Elizabeth Ingalls was born February 7th, 1867, to Charles Philip and Caroline Quiner Ingalls. She was born in Pepin, Wisconsin, in a log cabin that would later become known as the Little House in the Big Woods. And Laura and her family moved west from there, through what is now known as Kansas, then known as Indian Territory, uh, Minnesota, and South Dakota, which was called Dakota Territory at the time. In 1874, the family moved to Walnut Grove, Minnesota. And they only lived there for two years, with another brief stop in 1878 and 79. But it became the primary setting for the Little House TV show. Uh, The book by the same name, on the other hand, actually took place in Independence, Kansas. Probably because Walnut Grove is such an idyllic, perfect name. It is an idyllic, perfect name. And that, that there are some elements of the TV show that come pretty much from reality, but the TV show is definitely romanticized in a lot of ways. And so, as we said just a moment ago, they moved around a lot, many more places than their Little House books, which means there are actually seven historical sites and museums that are associated with the Wilders that are still standing today. So, if you wanted to, you could totally do a Laura Ingalls Wilder road trip all over the Midwest. I bet people have, surely. Ah, there has to be. Finally, the Ingalls family settled in Dismit, South Dakota, The last four books of the series are all set there. They moved to Dismit because Charles had taken a job for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad. He was going to mind a store, keep the books, and act as timekeeper. And in Dismit, uh, the 
Charles Ingalls filed for a homestead under the Homestead Act of 1862. And so did three members of another family, the Wilders. That was Almanzo, Royal, and Eliza Jane. So here's a quick primer on the Homestead Act for people who are unfamiliar, because it is a pretty important part of the history of the, the American frontier. Citizens and people who had filed their intent to become citizens could get 160 acres of land that the government had acquired, either from Native Americans or from other nations who had previously acquired it from Native Americans. In exchange, the homesteaders had to build a home on the land and cultivate it, working it for five years. At the end of that period, they had to prove that they had really done that work with witnesses. One of Charles Ingalls' witnesses was Royal Wilder. And according to the book The Long Winter, Manley was actually too young to file for his own homestead when this all went down. But that doesn't mesh with the historical record. His age is listed as 21 when he filed for the homestead and 26 when he filed his final proof. And all that matches with his age as shown in census records. Most likely, the reason that he's presented this way in the books is because the reality which is that Laura was 15 and he was 25 when they started courting, would have really raised some serious eyebrows in the 30s when she started writing the books. But that age difference and Laura's age when they started, you know, seriously uh, being with one another was really not out of the ordinary at the time. Yeah. It's all context. Yes. <laughs> A string of failed homestead attempts had actually led the Ingalls to finally settle in Dismet. And at one point, Charles had actually illegally settled the family on Osage Indian land in Kansas. And lots of other people had done the same thing. And they probably all thought that the government would eventually remove the Indians and give them the land. But it didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, the family had also left at least one other homestead before their five-year requirement had been met. Right. The Ingalls file for this land uh, in Dismet is in the National Archives. And you can look at it online for free. You can also find the Ingalls family in several census records from the time, also at the National Archives. And while we think of this as very romanticized stuff, there were lots of bad things that happened. Many, many, many bad things. When you read the Little House books, uh, the, the books and the childhood that inspired them can seem like this brutal series of terrible tragedies and hardships. And here's kind of an overview it all starts with the general overall difficulty of farming and running a homestead in a home that only has daughters. So the girls did work, uh, but a lot of their work was inside the house. It was things like making beds and cleaning and helping with the cooking. It wasn't really socially appropriate for them to do the work that boys would be doing, which was a lot of helping out in the fields. Um, they, they could do some of that, but really not as much as a boy would do. So Charles had to do a lot of it himself or pay someone to help them. And there was very frequently not enough money or not enough food or not enough paying work for Charles to use to help the family make ends meet. And they were also in various levels of debt at any given time. Uh, as you mentioned, it was expensive for him to keep these areas going. Yeah. Without the free help of male children. Right. So... It, you know, there were always money issues to think about. Yeah, they went on a number of long, arduous journeys, moving from place to place. And sometimes this came with periods of separation within the family. Like at one point when Pa had to go to Dakota Territory and Mary, who had been very ill, was not yet well enough to travel. And there were extremely tense relations between the family and other families like them. Uh, and the Native Americans. And those were justifiable tensions. But again, that's another stressor that's put on their life, their life at the time. Right. That 
they had some pretty big disasters, including everyone getting malaria, there being a major drought, and a prairie fire. Basically, every horrible thing you can think of, yeah, they got smacked with. Uh, the Panic of 1873, which was a major economic crisis that started after Jay Cook and Company, which was a ma- major railroad investor, shut down. So that had been employing a lot of people, and then suddenly, not so much. Right. Uh, they made it through one of the worst Midwest winters on record ever. Uh, Mary, of course, went blind, which is depicted on the TV series as well and the films. And after that, she got very, very sick. Yeah. The, she had a the, long illness. Yeah, there's some debate about exactly what illness led to her losing her sight. It's kind of described in the books as a brain fever. And there's talk about whether it was meningitis or encephalitis or measles or, or what exactly really happened. So a prolonged illness that, yes. that persisted even after she had lost her sight. Right. Uh, as we said before, Laura's brother, baby Freddie, also died when he was only nine months old. And while they were in Walnut Grove, there was a devastating locust infestation in 1874. And this led Charles to work for his neighbor just so he could afford to put in a crop of his own the following year. And he got the crop put in and the locusts came back and destroyed the entire wheat crop. And that happened again the next year. So it was just impossible to recover from. Right. The books are also often about work. There's homestead work like cleaning and farming, taking care of animals. But there's also work outside of their home. Laura and Mary worked at the Masters Hotel in Burr Oak, Iowa, when Laura was only nine years old. Their parents had become partners in a hotel venture with friends of theirs who were named the Stedmans. Uh, That is a thing that happened after those many consecutive years of terrible locust infestations. Laura worked at a hotel again in the summer of 1878, and this was after her parents had gone back to farming, but she wanted to try to bring in more money for the family. She was only 11 at the time. And in the summer of 1881, she had a job at a store making shirts for homesteaders. And the money that she made there was to help send her sister Mary to college. There was just a huge focus about hard work and the hardships of poverty in the books. And in addition to this being a reflection of the reality that Laura Ingalls lived through as a child, it also fits into the theme of when the book started publishing, which is during the Great Depression. And of course, when Laura was 15, she became a teacher. Uh, She passed her teaching exam in 1882. And she taught for three years. And during that time, Manley was often the one who drove her to and from the schoolhouse, which was 12 miles away from where her family lived. While he's depicted in the books as Laura's only suitor, the real life Laura was actually courted by other men before she and Almanzo met. She'd even been proposed to when she was very young in the sort of a when we grow up schoolyard kind of a way, which she broke off almost immediately uh, when that boy proved himself to be jealous when she played with other boys. Uh, in particular, one of the people who courted her was Cap Garland, who at various points she actually preferred to Almanzo. <gasps> Scandal. I know. <laughs> uh, Laura was actually kind of cool to Manly at first, uh, saying that she had accepted the offer of a ride just so she could be home. But eventually their rides did evolve into a courtship, And they were married, as we all know, and that took place on August 25th of 1885. And she was 18 at the time, uh, and their daughter Rose was born the next winter. The hardships that Laura wrote about in her childhood did not stop with their marriage, unfortunately. The year after Laura and Manley got married, their whole crop was destroyed in a hailstorm. Rose was then born in 1886, and the next year their barn burned down. 
Manley was partially paralyzed after a stroke that followed a bout of diphtheria in 1888. That fall, their son died when he was less than a month old. And their house burned down not long afterward, possibly because Rose, who had been trying to help, started a fire while trying to fuel the stove while Laura was in bed recovering from the birth. That's just such a pile of, like, stress. It just goes on and on and on. Like, we know you just had a baby. You have to run now from your burning down home. Yeah. Uh, In 1894, Laura, Manley, and Rose settled in Mansfield, Missouri, on a piece of property that they called Rocky Ridge Farm, which is where she wrote the books. Uh, This is a 650-mile, six-week journey, so an extremely arduous uh, trek. They traveled along with some other families who had also decided to make a new start in the Ozarks. They moved to Missouri with almost nothing. In an interview, she said they had brought a bed spring, a feather mattress, quilts, pots and pans, a skillet, a coffee pot, a homemade cupboard, some hens, and a portable writing desk that Manley had made. She also had a pearl-handled pin. In the writing desk was a $100 bill that they had meant to use as a down payment on a property, and they had saved this up from Laura's sewing money. Laura also used this pen to keep a diary of the journey, which was written on a notepad from a life insurance company. In 1962, about five years after her death, this diary was published as On the Way Home, the Diary of a Trip from South Dakota to Mansfield, Missouri in 1894. This diary records the day-to-day events of the trip, the sights she saw, the families she met, uh, and her voice and her skill as a writer evolve over the course of it. In the diary, she also refined her skill at observation and description, which is something that she might have started to build up in her youth while describing the world to Mary after she lost her sight. The family arrived in Mansfield, where Laura and Manley would live for the rest of their lives, on August 30th of 1894. And at that time, uh, fewer than 500 people were living in Mansfield. They found a spot that they loved. There was already a log cabin there and an orchard of apple trees. There was also a spring and a school nearby. But somehow the money had disappeared from the writing desk. They wound up buying a different piece of property, which had a cabin, but not as nice. And very little of the land was already cleared. Only later did they find the money, which had been wedged in the writing desk the whole time. I know. Heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. Well, and Rose wrote about her mother because, you know, Rose was old enough to remember all this happening. Yeah. When they got back from looking at this property, she was saying that she had never heard her mother talking so fast about this beautiful place that they had found. And then they weren't able to get it. And then later they found the money again. Just the universe kind of kicking you. I know. It's rough. Uh, they spent a year clearing the land that they did purchase, getting rid of some of the rocks that they had actually named it for, and living off of money that came from Laura's hens and selling the timber that they had cleared. They worked on making this a home of their own and turning it into a profitable enterprise. In 1898, they moved into town for a while after the death of a friend whose business Manly bought. To try to make ends meet at that point, they took in boarders, and Rose picked berries and helped churn butter. And they really were still a frontier family. They were raising an orchard and planting their food crops between the rows until the trees were too big to allow for that. And when that actually happened, they planted grass and clover instead so they could use that land for a hay crop. Laura also continued to raise hens, making money off of their eggs, and they joined the local Methodist church, which Laura and Manley remained members of for the remainder of their lives. Yeah, one of the things we didn't really mention about 
like important themes in the book uh, is the theme of faith that runs all the way through from beginning to end. Um, Their first decade or so in Missouri was a really pretty lean one. We don't know quite so much about what Laura thought of it, uh, but we do know what Rose thought of it. She has letters and diaries and things from this time. She described her childhood as a deeply unhappy one and very, very poor. But really, the Wilders weren't any poorer than other families in the Ozarks really were at that time. It's possible that Rose was picked on because she was shy and stubborn and geared toward being kind of a bookworm and not because their family was poor. Just like a frontier Lisa Simpson. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Uh, in 1903, the Wilders actually sent Rose to live with Manley's sister, who was named Eliza Jane. She's also called EJ. And she lived in Crowley, Louisiana. And pretty much immediately after she graduated from high school the next year, Rose left for Kansas City. She really clearly preferred city life to the frontier, as Tracy was just alluding to. Yeah, she didn't want to be on the frontier at all. And she didn't quite understand why her parents liked it. Like, she she couldn't fathom what that was about. Once Rose had moved out on her own, Laura and Manley turned their attention uh, pretty strongly to the farm. They improved it and built what Laura thought of as her dream house. This house is really tiny by today's standards. Neither Laura nor Manley were tall people, and they had really built it exactly to suit them, down to being scaled to how big they were. It's pretty awesome. They finished this house in 1913. Laura also focused more on her writing during this time. In 1910, she published a column in the St. Louis Star Farmer about her experience raising leghorn hens. She started publishing columns in the Missouri Ruralist in 1911. Sometimes she published as Mrs. A.J. Wilder and sometimes just as A.J. Wilder with the gender neutrality of that byline giving her some more publishing options and more credibility. She especially published as A.J. Wilder when she was writing about farming techniques. These were things that women did but women did not really write about them. And her writing became so popular that the Missouri Ruralist published a profile of her. She kept publishing there, although sometimes it was kind of sporadically, from 1911 to 1915. And she and Rose wrote letters to each other during this time about everything from the craft of writing to whether to get a typewriter. Rose herself was becoming a writer, too. Laura went to San Francisco to visit her daughter in 1915, and while she was there, they outlined a story about the Ozarks for Laura to finish writing when she got home again. I love this idea of a mother-daughter collaboration. Yeah. It's so charming. Starting in 1915, Laura became a really regular contributor to the Missouri Ruralist, with her byline appearing in the paper almost every week for the next nine years. Her first publication in a national magazine was in 1919 in McCall's, and it was an assignment that she got thanks to Rose's influence. This was also the first time her byline appeared as Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it was also the first time that Rose heavily edited her mother's work, something that would carry on as Laura published in larger magazines and then later when she wrote the Little House books. Before we get on to talking about those books, let's take a second and talk about our sponsor. And now we will return to the Little House books. Pioneer life. Yes. Rose grew up to be a reporter and writer, and as early as the 19-teens, she was really encouraging her mom to write her life's story. In 1924, Caroline Ingalls, Laura's mother, passed away, and one of Laura's aunts asked her to write down some stories about her mom's childhood. Then, in 1928, Mary died as well. 
And not long after that, Laura started writing her autobiography, Pioneer Girl. So there's some theories that these losses in her life prompted her uh, a little bit on the road of writing down all of these memories. But even with the help of Rose's literary agent, they couldn't find a publisher for Pioneer Girl. The world of autobiography was just not very popular just then. And that same year, though, Rose had a modern house, which was known as Rock House, built for her parents. Her own writing career was actually a little shaky at that point, uh, so she moved back home. Her parents moved into the Rock House, and she moved into their old farmhouse. And Rose and her mother worked extensively together for the next several years. Their first project after Pioneer Girl was a children's picture book that they called When Grandma Was a Little Girl. It's a little bit unclear exactly whether Rose adapted this from Pioneer Girl with or without her mom's knowledge or help, but it immediately got more attention than Pioneer Girl had. Marion Fiery at Alfred A. Knopf saw this and asked Laura to revise the book. Uh, she wanted her to add in more length and more detail. And with input from both Rose and Marion, Laura gradually rewrote the book, changing the audience from a picture book age to more like eight to ten year olds. She also changed the narration from first person to third person because third person novels sold better. The revision of When Grandma Was a Little Girl became Little House in the Big Woods. And Laura was actually offered a three-book contract with Knopf, but she didn't sign it right away. She and Rose sent it to Rose's literary agent, uh, a man named George By, to look at it first. And during the interim, Knopf decided to disband its children's book department, which meant that Marion Fiery would no longer work there. But Marion was so attached to the book that she actually advised Laura and Rose to try to sell it to another publisher instead, just so that it wouldn't be abandoned. Well, this idea... Number one, it's kind of shocking that she was like, my publisher is not going to do anything with this. Let's find you another one. Uh, But that idea worried both Laura and Rose. They were afraid that they wouldn't be able to find another publisher. And when Rose expressed this fear to Marion, Marion went directly to Virginia Kirkus at what was then Harper and Brothers. Virginia loved this book upon reading it. And in the end, it was Harper that published Little House in the Big Woods in 1932. The next book that Laura wrote was Farmer Boy, and that was about Manley's young life, uh, although Harper rejected it. And at about the same time, the Saturday Evening Post accepted Rose's uh, piece, Let the Hurricane Roar, to be published as a serial. Uh, but this was a problem because it actually had a lot in common with Laura's earlier autobiography, Pioneer Girl. And that was right down to the characters being named Charles and Caroline. This caused a huge rift between mother and daughter. Uh, Rose actually left the farm for a while. And when she came back in 1933, though, the the two of them got back to work together again, revising Farmer Boy, which was published the same year. And Farmer Boy and Little House in the Big Woods started outselling other children's books. And this allowed them to negotiate a better contract for their next book, which was called Little House on the Prairie. Uh, It had originally been titled Indian Country, and it came out in 1935. 1935 is also the year that Rose uh, finally left Rocky Creek Farm to strike out on her own again uh, for good, rather than the brief departure she had made after her publication of Let the Hurricane Roar. As soon as she left, her parents moved back into their farmhouse, and they eventually sold the rock house that she had built for them. It had really never been to their tastes. I kind of think that they moved into it just to be polite, Um, but their farmhouse really suited them perfectly, and that's where they wanted to live. That's always a big question mark for me in the story. Like, 
I can't imagine just being like, I'm building you a house to my dad, for example. Yeah. Who would be like, oh, that's my dumb kid. What are you doing? <laughs> like, that's a big thing to go through and just everybody being polite about it when it's not what everybody not, wants. Right. Uh, but Rose carried on editing her mother's books uh, through letters. And Laura sometimes pushed back very hard on changes that Rose had advised that she felt didn't make sense. Rose was really good at finding places that needed additional detail and the sort of basic writing criticism that most people would learn, for example, in a writing 101 class in college. But sometimes her own very different experience of growing up in the Ozarks didn't really match her mother's life elsewhere. So they kind of had a different point of view issue. Yeah. Well, and as as Laura got more and more experience under her belt, she did take a stronger stand against some of her daughter's suggestions. Uh, as that as time went on, the next book that came out was On the Banks of Plum Creek in 1937, and Laura won a Newbery Honor for it in 1938. Then came By the Shores of Silver Lake in 1939, and the rest of the books came out at a rate of one per year after that. Uh, that was The Long Winter, Little Town on the Prairie, and These Happy Golden Years. All of them got Newbery Honors as well. And once she had wrapped up... Uh, all of those books, she really felt like her children's book series was completed and done. Yeah, there are other books uh, by her. One is called The First Four Years, and that came out in 1971. Uh, that was after her death. Rose had inherited her mother's papers, and then upon her own death, everything had gone to Roger Lee McBride, who found the manuscript and published it. A collection of letters called West from Home also came out in 1974. And these books are historical, but it's important to remember that they're also highly crafted novels. Laura is always learning about family, community, and values, about how to treat other people, and the value of things like hard work and education. And the descriptions of Laura's life and her observations of other people are often framed in a way that is intended to reveal things about human nature. It's also clear that Laura took liberties with the actual facts, sometimes to make a a better story. In a speech at the Detroit Book Fair in 1937, she said, All I have told is true, but it is not the whole truth. I love that. I do, too. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion about the difference between facts and truth and uh, and the idea that, that Laura's books are truth, but not fact. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about just what role Rose actually played in the writing of these books. Rose wrote a lot of other material besides the Frontier-related serials that she published while her mother was working on the Little House books. And some were celebrity biographies, some were ghost-written autobiographies about people like Henry Ford or Herbert, Herbert Hoover or Charlie Chaplin. And she also wrote travelogues and fiction, and she was a magazine writer, so it's unclear how much is her influence yeah. versus her mother's writing. We definitely know for sure that uh, Rose was editing Laura's work. But writers who have compared Laura's early drafts to the finished product have come up with wildly different conclusions about just how much credit Rose should get. In The Ghost in the Little House, William Holtz suggests that Rose had a much, much bigger role in the books than anyone has previously thought, that she really should be considered a ghost writer writing under her mom's byline, or at least a really heavy contributor to the books rather than just an editor. In Becoming Laura Ingalls Wilder by John E. Miller, on the other hand, the author makes a case for Laura having had the skill to really do all of this work herself from the start. Uh, and that her daughter was a part of it, but really not the whole. Yeah. And not deserving of the same level of credit that uh, William Holtz suggests. 
Lara and Manley sold Rocky Ridge Farm in 1948, and they kept just their home and the land immediately around it. Manley died about a year later following a heart attack. Laura's own health had started to decline not too long after that. She died at home at the age of 90 on February 10th of 1957. Rose was at the farm that day. Laura had outlived Ma, Pa, Mary, Carrie, and Grace, and her husband, because life is cruel. It is so cruel. Throughout the whole books. Yes. But everyone generally keeps their chin up. And then they soldier on. They keep working hard. Keep having faith. That is kind of the... It's a good life lesson. <laughs> there are lots of good life lessons in the book. <laughs> it's a really good life lesson. Like, at this point, children's literature had moved away somewhat from sort of... And the moral of this story is... But there are definitely morals to a lot of the stories that, that are in these particular books. In the early 1950s, the books did start to draw some criticism about their depictions of Native Americans. For example, a portion of the original text of Little House on the Prairie read, There the wild animals wandered and fed as though they were in a pasture that stretched much farther than a man could see. And there were no people. Only Indians lived there. It took from 1923 until the 50s up. For someone to bring up that that is a pretty offensive statement. Yeah. Um, and it, it was one of those things where when the people who received this letter got it, they kind of went, oh, that how? is terrible. That's awful. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, these books are a product of their time and being written is also a product of the time when they were written in, which was a much different time than the 50s and a deeply different time than now. Yeah. Um, that line was changed in the next edition of the books to say, and there were no settlers rather than, and there were no people. And the treatment of Native Americans in the books continues to be controversial today. Uh, there are times when the, it, it seems as though Native Americans are written about with both sympathy and empathy, but then also times when the depictions are pretty stereotypical. And they are not considered people. Uh, that too. Problem. Uh, the, and the, the very, the, the entirety of the books, like the fact that the American frontier was people settling land on which there had previously been people, yeah. many of whom had been forcibly removed, is pretty problematic. My own personal feeling about this is that it's a, it's an important part of history to learn about. And the best thing to do is to read these books and then talk about them, uh, especially if children are interested in, in yeah. them, uh, rather than kind of saying, no, we're not going to read this because it's offensive today. Well, or altering it so that that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an important element of the times, and especially, you know, the portion where we were talking about earlier where Charles tried to settle an area and uh, assumed that eventually the Native yeah. Americans that were there would just be pushed out and they would get the land. Yeah. Those are important issues to discuss in kind of the development of, our treatment of Native Americans. Yeah. Well, and that had a multifaceted issue, too, because a, a railroad speculator also was involved in it. And there yeah. was, it became this question of if the railroad wants the land, it's going to cost more. There are a lot of issues that I think are, are important and how America developed. Yeah. How the United States developed as a nation, uh, which I think are better read and discussed than ignored or overlooked. Yeah. Uh, and that is my feeling on that. I believe I have some listener mail. Hooray! Would you share it with us? I or would. just read it quietly to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually have two pieces of mail about our episode uh, about smallpox. 
Uh, the first one is a correction, and we got this from a couple of people, and this particular uh, version of the correction is from Matt. Matt says, I really love your show. I wanted to let you guys know that while smallpox is the only human disease so far completely eradicated by mankind, Renderpest virus was eradicated from livestock worldwide in 2011. Previously, it had been a considerable infectious burden, especially in the developing world. Also, it is the only disease so far eradicated from livestock. And then he sends some links. That is completely my bad. With the caveat that that is so wrong in so many places still. Yeah. Um, even the, the materials that I was researching that are, are really recent publications um, have generally not been updated to talk about Renderpest. So, there are two entire diseases that mankind has uh, eliminated from the planet. One being smallpox. The, under be- the other being Renderpest, one in humans, one in cattle. Hooray for both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and Renderpest would, like, wipe out entire herds, and then people would starve. So Thanks, science. Yeah. So it was very similar in, in scope to, uh, to smallpox. Like, we talked about how smallpox would change a line of succession, or, a, like, an army in the field would have a smallpox epidemic, and then the, the battle would go in a different way. Similarly... Uh, like a, a whole herd of, of cattle would uh, get render pest and die, and then the people who had been relying on them for food and leather and that kind of thing would be attacked by someone, and since they were all starving and naked, they didn't would really have poorly. the energy to fight. Yeah. So, thank you, Matt, and everyone else who wrote to us about render pest. I learned something new. Hooray! Uh, our others, our other email is from Anne Marie. Anne Marie says hi there. I just wanted to respond to an offhanded comment you made about parents trying to expose their children to chicken pox if they're anti-vaccination. Unfortunately, that is still going on, and it's an incredibly bad idea. Chicken pox isn't as harmless as people believe it is and can be dangerous even in children. It can also easily spread from the children to at-risk populations like infants who are too young to be vaccinated or people with weakened immune systems who can't get vaccines or who don't build up a good immune response to the vaccine. The vaccine cannot spread to others in this way. The vaccine will also not cause the people who get it to suffer needlessly for days with the symptoms of the disease. It's also been pointed out uh, by many doctors and epidemiologists that even if there were no vaccine available, pox parties promote the spread of disease and can cause epidemics rather than actually helping to contain the disease. Uh, He goes on to talk a little bit more about Vaccines. So, yes, that is very interesting to know that yeah. there are still pox parties going on. Um, I don't really remember any actual pox parties when I was a child, but I definitely knew uh, sort of a, oh, you were at their house and now they have chicken pox. Maybe you'll get it too and we'll get this over with. Yeah, I don't remember very well. It's a little bit of a blur. Well, I actually remember that when I had it and all of my siblings had it, I really wanted my friends to come over, and they weren't allowed. So. Right. Yes. I have had that vaccine, I think I already said in our previous episode, because I did not get chicken pox as a child. I like, so did. Like many other people at that time. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our website and put the word Ozarks in the search bar. 
and you will find an article called A Guide to Hiking the Ozarks. So you can go get some first-hand looking at the area where Laura Ingalls Wilder eventually settled as an adult. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.